Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Dave, I have for you a very brief stack waddy with a, with a slightly kind of Christmas flavour to it. So are you are you ready to, to tackle this? I'm ready. Five pop-related festive accessories available to warm your hearth this Christmas, all right? So uh, some of these are official merchandise, some, some are less official. Four of them are real, and one of them is invented. Spot the ringer, okay? Five finger death punch wool mix yuletide holiday sweater, £35.99. Five finger death punch, I don't have to remind you, are a Las Vegas based heavy metal band. All right, that's the first. Okay. Jimmy Page Christmas tree topper, which is a little effigy of the Led Zeppelin guitarist to crown your Scots pine, £12. (laughs) Yeah. Number three, Taylor Swift Christmas Essential T-shirt, blazoned with the legend Merry Swiftmas, a snip at 1424. Okay. Number four, Brandy Carlisle Brandy Butter, pep up your pud with the Americana crossover queen, $24.99. Okay. And the last one is a a Bowie, is Bowie and Bing in a bauble. Snowflaked double festive glass sphere tree decoration featuring the twin singers of Little Drummer Boy, £30. No. Okay. That sounds for, like, for all those are real, uh, one of them is made up. Probably very a, That sounds like nothing so much as Mark Ellen has got 200 words space to fill up in bits in Smash Hits in 1983. <laughs> it, is, it, is. it just absolutely sounds like that. <laughs> I'm going to. I have absolutely no idea. So I don't believe anything from Taylor Swift will be so cheap. Um, but I'm going to say the Jimmy Page thing is the thing that you made up. Oh right, no, it's real. No, no, oh. for twelve pounds you can buy a Jimmy Page Christmas tree topper. Just Google it. Five finger death punch. Yes, real. It's amazing how how all these kind of heavy metal bands have these really traditional woolly jumpers, but with their logo on them. Bowie and Bing in a Bauble is absolutely right. For 30 quid, you can get one of those, just little tiny pictures of them in the glass sphere. Taylor Swift is because it's not, it's not, uh, it's not official merchandise. Obviously, it's some kind of bootleg, but it's there. Mary Swiftmas, 1424. No, the ringer is is Brandy Carlisle's Brandy Butter. Because I think Brandy Carlisle probably not the humorous soul that would uh, go for. <laughs> Outrageous! What a merchandise. Shame. But that's the ringer. You know, I I got the idea for this for some reason. I was googling something about Christmas singles. And I discovered that ACDC had had a single out called "Mistress for Christmas," about the joys of, a, of an extramarital romp. The chorus was "Get a date with the woman in red. Want to be in heaven with three in a bed." And I thought, no. This came out in 1990, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> so this is, a, this is a single that that rhymes uh, a j- a "jingle all the way" with "grope in the hay." Yeah. So I was trying to imagine that you know, if, I, I can't imagine anyone would have the 
have the, it would be as insane enough to put out a record like that now. Yeah. There it was in 1990. So there you go. Well done. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So we were talking about the uh, the New Musical Express Encyclopedia of Rock the other day, which oh. you have a copy of, and indeed I now have a copy of it too. I've got and, a, uh, I've got a hardback copy, which I think is from yeah, Salamander Books, uh, published in 1976. That's the one. Uh, uh, edited, put together by Nick Logan, who at the time was the editor of the NME. Yeah, uh, Bob Bob Woffington, who at the time was the kind of reviews editor of the of the NME. Bob sadly died a couple of years ago. Yeah, he did. Um, Lovely guy. Uh, and he went on to have a very distinguished career as a kind of um, crime reporter, wasn't he? Well, he wrote about kind of miscarriages of justice. Yeah, was, that's right. Was his speciality. But uh, this is absolutely extraordinary piece of work. And I just I tweeted a picture of this <clears throat> yesterday, saying. Remember when we had this instead of the internet, you know? Yeah. Which was a slight exaggeration, but not far off. And it's amazing the responses I got, you know. So Ian Atkin, shall I read you a few of these? Yeah, go on. Ian Atkin says, I first read it in my school library. And boy, this is is so interesting. So many of the people read it in a library and bought my own when I got interested in music, a real cover-to-cover experience. Fritz Knappler says, my Bible for a good long time. I still have it in tatters and taped together. Learned, learned so much. It warped my t- taste more than I realised uh, when I was a kid. You know, Rockin' Daddy said he owned the copy. It was the Bible. Michael uh, Svensson from Sweden says, my library in Karlstad, Sweden, had a copy. You are not allowed to bring it home. But I read it many times while listening to different cassettes with headphones. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> His book was, was so... a lovely one from a guy called James Barnes, I saw. He said that when he went for a job at, at Music and Video Exchange, by which he must have been record and tape exchange, he said he was tested in his interview. They got out a copy of the Enemy Book of Rock and asked him to kind of, uh, you know, for various facts, because it was the real standard textbook, wasn't it, really? It was. Mr. Snowd says... My copy from about 1982, because it obviously got updated, you know, yeah. quite regularly. Although probably not by Nick, actually, because Nick had moved. No, he would have left. Yeah. Um, Mr. Snow says my copy from about 1982 sagely noted that Peter Gabriel's <coughs> excuse me finest moment might come in the future, which of course was true. And Hawkwind would go on tirelessly repeating Silver Machine to even younger audiences. Oh, it's really, there's quite a bit of that. There's a bit where they talk about Nick Drake. It's only a very, very small Oh, is it in there? Yeah, and it just says his sales were merely adequate. It's a really tiny little entry. And then there's one about Queen, which is so funny, where it says... uh, Queen are as good as uh, example as any with which to approach the theory that the vacuum effect uh, of the vacuum effect of rock. This states that when a top flight proven rock attraction withdraws into a period of, of inactivity, the void thus created will be filled by a substitute. They talk about how you know David Bowie and Led Zeppelin disappear and immediately Cockney Rebel and Queen arrive. You know. Yes, sir. And I thought that was a really good bit of perspective, actually. It said, Queen, clean like an Earthsats Led Zeppelin, but keeping one foot in the glam rock camp. Really interesting. And it's amazing the number of people who could remember, who could reel off, you know, whole sentences from the book. Steve yeah. McCarthy says, from memory. So presumably he wasn't even looking up, it up. He says, Ginger Baker, looking like the cat who ate the cream, brackets, ouch. Yes, played yes. a band who will undoubtedly come again. Blood on the tracks, proving that no one could be as compelling as Dylan. No one. And I went and looked up those quotes in my copy, and he's absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely right, I'm sure. <laughs> that's, that's what he remembers. And it's it's just absolutely amazing, because this is kind of before. It's amazing to look at this now. You know, how many years ago? It's nearly 50 years ago, isn't it? It's not far off this, this edition, this 1976 edition. Yeah. Mine's and, from 77, so it has the Sex Pistols just arrived in the class. Okay. Well, this copy doesn't have the Sex Pistols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they must have just hastily done it. It did, got the strangers. It's got the clash or anything like Right, okay. Well, they obviously added to to yeah. that then. But it's um it's before rock became the kind of how can I how can I put it? Canonical. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's before it became accepted. That's that's the body of work, you know. And it's just absolutely extraordinary to see this stuff. So do you know how many, the 1976, how many, oh, actually, no, let me check. Am I talking about the right book? Here? 600 entries I've got. Okay. Which is um, really interesting because you could love to have been at the meeting where they decided that, you know, there's, you know, there's no Stack Waddy, there's no Glenn Cornick's Wild Turkey, there's no Pete Brown's Battle of Ornaments, but, but they have got, you know, um, Sons of Champlin, the Butts Band, Michael yeah. Fennelly. I'd never heard of, of those last three. I'd never well, heard of Sons okay, of Champlin. The, but, the Did they deserve band. to be in there? Sons of Champlin were a kind of, I think, San Francisco group. Yeah. Um, certainly Californian group. And I don't really know much about them at all. The Butts Band were a group formed, I think, I'm doing this off the top of my head, and please forgive me if I get that slightly wrong. I very often, if we get <laughs> slightly inaccurate, uh, people get in touch saying, don't you know that so-and-so? Well, no, we're not stopping in the They're middle of this. Actually from Woking. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the Butts Band uh, were members of the Doors, I think, plus, <laughs> it's bizarre when I think wow. about it, plus Jess Roden. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think they're on Ireland. Um, and I think it was Robbie Krieger, possibly from the doors. Okay, no, very good. This is good knowledge. And what was the other one? Michael Fennelly. Michael Fennelly. Michael Fennelly. Michael Fennelly made a record called Lane Changer. Michael Fennelly. Fantastic, had, you know that. I've got a couple of Michael Fennelly albums <laughs> indoors. That's incredible. Over there. Michael Fennelly was, had been the lead singer for some American group. And I've just, right now, I've stopped my head. I've forgotten. So, okay. This is the Bruce Springsteen entry uh, from 1976. How many albums, Mark? How many? The, so the entire catalogue of Bruce Springsteen in 1976. Oh, God, I know. Would it have been four by then? No, uh, five, three. Three. Five? Three. 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 That's all. It's Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, The Wild, The Innocent, The East Street Shovel, and Born to Run. Three. Okay. So all these years later, Bruce Springsteen has just released a new record, what number is that? I think I know it. it's something like 26 or 27. It's 26. It? That's unbelievable. It's 26. I know, yeah, so yeah, three yeah. plus 26. And the interesting thing about this is if you read this this entry, and it's you know, it's not a huge entry, but it's 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 decent, you know. It's kind of the the basic story is there, really, in those yeah. three records. This is what this guy did. Now, he later on went on to do it in loads of different ways. And clearly, the scale of his success was massive and unprecedented. But it doesn't invalidate what was written about him just on the basis of three records, you know. And, and also, it's the story before the making of those records, which obviously yeah. isn't going to change, which is which is what's so interesting, because once he becomes Bruce Springsteen, he simply goes on extending what he's already started doing. Whereas it's it's how he became Bruce Springsteen and what led up to that, the groups he was in, his travels and his relationships. That's the kind of really interesting thing. It's such a good book and it's so journalistic. Because obviously it's journalistic. It's all written by enemy. Uh, you know, everything's captioned. And uh, well, you know, I mean, the other thing, Mark, that we really should recognize with this, that we would recognize more than most people, is the thing that made this thing different was it was in color. And it, was, yeah, it was it had fabulous pictures in it. Yeah, now, and 150 the, album sleeves, which yeah, is a really attractive thing at the time. The antecedent to this was uh do you remember that? I do, yeah, this yeah. Is the enemy book of rock from 1973, which I think was pretty much based on something that they'd done in the paper in multi-parts, yeah. and then they'd they kind of tricked it out for a you know, it's just a kind of standard standard paperback. Whereas the 1976 thing is is a lavish, you know, get it for you, ask for it for Christmas type of, yeah, type of a book, isn't it? And mine, uh, you know, because I'm fortunate enough to have it in, in hardback, boy, it's been thumbed, but it holds together really, really well. And do you remember in the days of Smash Hits, in the early days of Smash Hits, we used to keep these at the office. Didn't oh, we? yeah, as a reference book, yeah. I brought this in. It lived in the Smash Hits office for years, this thing. Because, yeah. you know, even in the early 80s, if you wanted just a, a reference source to kind of remind yourself, you know, I don't know, how many records Elvis Presley had made or all the shadows or anything, you know, if you're writing some kind of retrospective piece, which you very often were, or you're putting together a quiz or something, 
there was no other way of finding out. No, there wasn't. Than in a book you couldn't like just that. Google it. Yeah. You couldn't just Google it at all. And so, so if you just happened to be writing a piece about the Sutherland brothers and Quiver in Smash It, very unlikely. So that would be well, your only... Who, think, bizarrely, Quiver, of course, been the group on the cover. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So were, extraordinary. But, Why did they choose a complete... I suppose uh, they just well, were I archetypally think, a rock they the group. They wanted the group that looked like anybody and nobody in particular. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I think that's what that's where they ended yeah. up with that. But, you know, you, you say, you say, you know, would you not be writing about... Sutherland Brothers and Quivering Smash It. I think it's not impossible you might have been, actually, because Bruce Thomas of Elvis Costello's attraction. He, he was a member. I was a former member of Quiver. Quiver. And and so Quiver, weren't they the original backing band on Elvis's first album? Were they members? That no, was Clover, no, no, sorry, no, was Clover. That was Clover. That was Clover, yeah, yeah. yeah. Somebody else VR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um and you know, you very often will be just looking up this stuff to, you know, to 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 remind yourself uh, of, of things that you dimly remember. Yeah, yes. here it is, James Barnes, late eighties. I was randomly quizzed uh, with the book at an interview for a job at Music and Video Exchange. Name three Jefferson Airplane albums. That's fantastic. Now, can you name three Jefferson Airplane albums, Mark? Come on, can, can you I? God, after bathing at Baxter's, after bathing at Baxter's, a surrealistic pillow, surrealistic pillow. Um, you could also have had bless its pointed little head, bless pointed little head. You could also have had uh, oh god, what else? Uh, volunteers, you yeah, know, volunteers. I, I don't know. But it's it's amazing, you know how. Um, what an important part this has played a lot. I know. A lot of people, actually. I don't know if Nick is very is aware of that, you know. I'm sure I'm sure he didn't get paid an awful lot of money for it or anything like that. And he's probably just in the UK, you know. But um it was, you know, it was a fantastic source of information when when there weren't that many sources of information around. And a it's, real opportunity for them to indulge all their little favorites. There's a huge entry for Arlo Guthrie. And Alice's restaurant, and you just think that's something that's kind of fizzled out a bit, you know. I'll tell you that, I, I was on. looking. I was looking at this thing. So this is the earlier version, the Enemy Book of Rock, which, as I say, is just kind of cheap paperback, 1973. And I don't know if this is my original copy or I inherited it from a mate or something, um, or or acquired it. I don't know. But the, but there is an attempt to kind of keep up with the passing of time. So occasionally at the end of entries, somebody has added, here we go, <laughs> Frank Zappa there. I don't know if you can see that. It's got yeah, Frank, yeah. Frank Zappa entry. Can you see handwritten things underneath yep. the Frank Zappa entry where somebody's added some other albums that have been released subsequent to the book coming out? And I think that's really interesting because there was sort of a feeling you know, if you if you'd ask Nick or Bob back at the time they're putting together this, you know, pick group at random. I'm just opening it: Richie Havens, Ronnie Hawkins, Hawkwind, Hatfield and the North, Keith Hartley. You know, if you ask them, do you think any of these groups will carry on making records for the next oh fifty years? They would have said, no, not simply what. That simply won't happen. Not even Bruce Springsteen, exactly. It will all, it will all just stop. Yeah. And, and they'll um, be replaced. And uh, and of course, that's what they were wrong about, and we were wrong about. Everybody yeah. was wrong about. You know, that there was it was it was a feeling it was it was still, you know, it was still what's that old Beatles sleeve note, isn't it? Pop picking is a fast and furious business. Yeah. <laughs> we we still thought it moved really quickly. And uh, we weren't to know that it, it was, uh, you know, it was going to move really slowly for for an incredibly long time. And, the, and that the Super League were not going to be replaced. Yes, yes. So if you were... If but you, you get a real t- taste of that time, you flick through it. It's Peter Frampton, Kevin Coyne, Roy Harper, Maggie Bell, Coliseum, Screaming Lord Such. Oh. It's a time capsule, isn't it? It's the idea just dropped into that moment. And and actually, it's quite exciting, and you can feel their excitement in writing about the Sex Pistols and the Clash and stuff, because obviously that is bringing in some kind of change. 
which is quite thrilling, as it was on the paper. That uh, that led me to get this out, which again lived in the Smash Hits office and probably the Q office, actually, for years, which was the Rolling Stone Record Guide. Actually, this was published in 1980. I think it was done in 1979 in the United States, mainly done by Dave Marsh. Uh, and Dave Marsh, great writer, but you know, very, very opinionated, which is what you wanted. And um, and it says reviews and ratings of almost ten thousand currently available rock, pop, soul, country, blues, jazz, and gospel albums. Yeah, ten thousand. You know, feel the width. And at the time, it just seemed absolutely amazing. There's the, you know, opens it an entry of Emmy Lou Harris. Uh, the time has got one, two, three, four, five albums. And at that time, that seemed like a really long career. Yeah. Huge. Five albums. How many, how many has, has Emmy Lou Harris got to this date? You know, I, I can't possibly imagine it. But the thing that struck me looking at this book was because of that attitude, because careers were quite short and so forth. You could be, or critics could be, or it's part of the kind of, you know, the, the the critical armory to be quite dismissive of people in a way that nobody is dismissive of anything any longer. Because Well, you didn't feel any- you needed a relationship with them because you didn't imagine they're going to be around very long. I don't but- think it was just that. I think, you know, if anybody, you know, I don't know, if the observer... <laughs> approaches any kind of figure in music nowadays that's been around longer than 10 years, there's a little bit of a hush in their voice. (laughs) Yeah. This is an institution, let's not forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas these people weren't institutions. I'm going to give you examples of this, Mark. I've plucked out of the Rolling Stone record guide for 1980 a bunch of dismissive uh, critical summations and you're going to have to tell me who you think they could possibly... Oh, that's interesting. So then if it's 1980, they're probably quite recent records at the time. There wouldn't be records that came out in 1972 and Dave Marsh had a chance to reevaluate. Well, I don't know. Okay, go on. Okay, here we go. An arrogant amateur with more pretenses than anyone in the history of rock and roll. (laughs) An arrogant amateur with more pretenses than anyone in the history of rock and roll. And I would agree with you, actually, <laughs> probably. God, it's not Rod Stewart, is it? But it's, no, it's, no, 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 no. So it's an American star, probably. 1980? 1980. I've got to tell you, it's, pa- it's Patty Smith. Oh, my Lord. Now, they, now, Mark Inland, because I can see you here, you've actually put your hands over your mouth when you said that. Oh, my Lord. It's like... You, you wouldn't dare say that kind of thing. No, about you wouldn't Patty. dare say it now, but but I think there's some truth in it, actually. And I've never been a big Patti Smith fan, but I'm just amazed at the idea that somebody, you know, that kind of revered. But that's my point. Been, they dismissed that's exactly. my point. Nobody in 1979-80 was revered. And yeah. It's really interesting. Here we go. go another on. Another performer. White soul for snobs. White soul for snobs. Robert Palmer. That's absolutely no. correct. <laughs> you picked it out of the notebook. That's amazing. So we've never met before, have we? No. Have a balloon. I did not give you a five-pound note. fantastic. Oh, okay. Good. Here we go. Here we go. Next one. This is uh, describing one album, uh, but a very well-known album. Valuable as both a musical oddity and background music for watching tropical fish sleep. The other albums repeat the latter's musical themes with varying motifs and are hence unnecessary. Brian Eno? No, you're in the right region. It's Kraftwerk's Autobahn. Oh, okay. You yeah, wouldn't yeah, be allowed, again, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. No, you really wouldn't. Here we go. It's talking about somebody's first two albums. No, because those are the only two albums they had out at the time, I think. Yes. So no hits at this point. No talent singer whose camp posturing made her a Bette Midler-style favourite with the gay community. You had to be there, I guess. Wow. So she had two albums in 1980. Yeah. It's not Blondie because they would have had hits. Camp posturing. 
It's not Pat Benatar or anybody. It's Bet, somebody Bet, really well Bet, known. Bette Midler style fa- favorite with the gay community. Barbara Streisand? No, it's not. Is it? No, um, Grace Jones. Oh, Grace Jones. Good God, yes. Next one. The album that at one point outsold everything else in the Atlantic catalogue quickly became as forgettable an artifact as the group itself. It's now garbage. It's now garbage. Led Zeppelin? No. Iron Butterflies in a garbage. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a huge record. Oh my <laughs> lord. And it is actually that's a, like that's pretty fair. It's just, absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. Album there. Uh, okay, next one. Sort of like the consequences of mating Patty Smith with a Hoover vacuum cleaner. Patty Smith and Hoover vacuum You're not going to get it. No. Kate, Bu- Kate Bush. Oh, no. God, that's God. That's amazing. Next, next one. It's Patty Smith again. Next one. Does for Patty Smith what pa- Alice Cooper did for Iggy Pop? Swipes a minor idea and beats it to death. Swipes a minor idea and beats it to death. It's what? Go on. Blondie. Oh, heavens above. That's incredible. Next one. Limpid adult bubblegum rockers and ballads of numbingly airsat sensitivity. The vocal harmonies that were supposed to be their forte are so static that when played at anything like a loud volume, they actually feel like needle pricks on the brain. Good God. Uh, it's a pop act. It can't be someone like Squeeze. It's an American act, isn't it? It's going to be it's, it's late the first, Beach Boys. It's the first album by Crosby, Stills and Yeah. Oh, my Lord. No. Uh, and finally, uh, the band seemed most influenced by the bubblegum music of the late 60s. Crazy Elephant and the 1910 Fruit Gum Company are clear reference points, which is a really interesting point, but nobody would say it any longer. They just absolutely wouldn't say it. If anybody's right about this group nowadays, they would approach them with such awe that they would not be able to actually hear what Dave Marsh hears in them in the late 70s, which is, yes, they do sound like the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Because if you're right in the late 70s, you remember the 1910 Fruit Gum Company because your perspective was, it was different, obviously. Do you know who that is? Go on. Talking Heads. No. <laughs> yes. This, I would never have got that in a million years. It's impossible to guess. Talking Heads, that's extraordinary. But, but you know, that's, that's the point of this. That's what's really interesting about looking at these old reference books is that there's none of the kind of clouds of, refer- of reverence that with that everything is seen through nowadays. Yeah, you know? yeah. Doesn't matter who it is, you know. Everybody. If, but if and also any... Rolling Stone felt that they had exacting standards, didn't they? That they were the hardest to please. So yeah, you know. well, I think that's a bit a bit of that's Dave Marsh. And Dave, you know, Dave Marsh is really good at this kind of stuff. And Dave Marsh also wrote a terrific book uh called The Heart and Rock Heart and Rock and Soul, which is a thousand and one records that that made rock and roll. And that's yeah. all about singles. And uh and Dave Marsh was you know, really opinionated, but but really could back up his opinions. And, but I can uh, still remember I can still remember reviews from Rolling Stone itself of records that came out at the time. Are you experienced by Jimi Hendrix? The, the the poor quality of the songs and the inanity of the lyrics too often gets in their way. I can still remember things like that. You know, Led Zeppelin uh, it offers little that its twin, the Jeff Beck group, didn't say well or uh, as well or better several months ago. Well, so they were incredibly dismissive a lot of the time. These people went on to be absolutely monumental. Yeah, but, but then we've but all it, done it. We've all but, done it, haven't we? But then, but don't you think that that just proves that if if somebody like you know Led Zeppelin, his point was. Led Zeppelin didn't do anything that the Jeff Beck group didn't do. Yeah. And Jeff Beck group did nothing. Yeah. Commercially. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of true. Except the difference is Led Zeppelin went on to become absolutely enormous. Yeah. And are still enormous, although defunct, all these years later. So when people are writing about Led Zeppelin, that's what they're writing about. You know, they're not. They're not responding as somebody would have responded in 1969 to just hearing something. Yeah, you know, 
what they're doing is is writing about the phenomenon Led Zeppelin that we'd all live with for you know for fifty years or fifty years in in my case or whatever. It's just it's absolutely extraordinary. I'm just I'm just reading there's further tweets coming in on this on this subject. Uh, David Quantic says, um, and uh, where is it? He said, uh, I learned to write about music from this book and the Beatles illustrated record, which is, of course, you know, also came out of the enemy stable, didn't it? The Roy Carr and Tony Tyler probably did that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And uh, he said, I absorbed it, quoted it, and had to buy a second copy as I had cut out all the sleeve photos. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> the Beatles entry in the Enemy Encyclopedia is so funny because they, in a very kind of wonderfully old school way, with all the entries, they list the group member and the instrument they played. Yes. And it says with the Beatles, it says uh, John Lennon, guitar vocals, Paul McCartney, bass vocals, George Harrison, guitar vocals, Ringo Starr, drums vocals. <laughs> in 1976, you think of all the instruments that they played in that time. You know? I suppose it's so. Hilariously funny, but, but we still we still saw them as kind of an old as the people on the back of it, "Please Please Me." Exactly. No, it's, it's funny. I was looking at this. Uh, it, was, it was a different book. I was looking at this. Uh, the Rolling Stones, and uh, in the uh, in the in the nineteen seventy three book. Yeah, uh, and I think it it says, um, "Oh, was it gone?" Uh, oh yeah yes another point oh yes it's the ending yeah rolling stones here we go it's got abbreviations for the instruments they play yes yeah. save space it goes mick jagger vocals yes it's great <laughs> and then it goes vooks <laughs> it's for some reason the abbreviation for harmonica is H R M N E, which is hardly an abbreviation it's, at all yeah. yeah, well, it must be a harmonic. No, it is that, yeah. And a guitar, 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 guitar. <laughs> and uh, so, so this is the close, the close of Dooms. the, the close of the, uh, of the anime book of rock. For this is, you know, as I say, seventy four or whatever, um, on the Rolling Stones entry. Um, Mick Taylor left band December nineteen seventy four. To form new new group with Jack Bruce and Carla Blay, and replacement currently being sought. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> That's it is. a snapshot in time. Absolutely, as we that. go to press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, so they, they, whoever this was, and I don't think it was me. This copy I've got, I've just seen the the entry, and it's amazing they've got an entry for Elephant's Memory. Do you remember Elephant's I do. memory? And um and and, uh, and it lists um an album uh by Elephant's Memory on Apple, uh 1972. And then somebody's added underneath in pen Angels Forever, which is obviously the next album that came out 
whoever had this book obviously thought, I'll just make a few additions and then the story will be finished. It'll all be done. You know what I mean? We shall never hear from any never of these groups from again. I know. Yeah. So it's fantastic stuff. And so, yeah, if you remember them, I, I suppose it's value. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I must have might have had one. I can't remember, but I, I, I didn't. I couldn't find it now. So I bought another. And uh, how much did I pay for it, Dave, on Amazon? It's an old, obviously, it's an old copy. How much did I pay for it? Come on, I have no idea. I lost one pound fifty. That's ridiculous. I'm I know, surprised. Pound fifty. The postage, I think, was two pound fifty. <laughs> it's incredible. And it's so in good. It's, it's, it's a shame. Good, it's such in good a neck. Oh, it's in fantastic neck. It's just absolutely brilliant. But I mean, it's just, uh, it seems so sad, really, that something as wonderful as that is now so, because nobody is completely redundant. You know, it totally redundant, as are all those kind of textbooks. Yeah, everything can be just uh, can be just researched, you know. Well, except that we we had our um, we had our social, didn't we, the other night? The reason this has come up this week is we had our social the other night with our uh, our um, Patreon supporters at um, at a pub in uh, in Covent Garden. Covent Garden, and uh, we were talking to various people about the Friday night quiz, and somebody said. I'd be all right if all the questions are about the enemy book of rock from 1976. So we thought, that's a good idea. Not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. We might make a 1976-77 special because that's that's our core area. (laughs) It is. So so that's why I went went, uh, went out looking for that book and and found these other ones as well. And also I've got a copy of Lillian Roxon's Rock Encyclopedia. Uh, somewhere over there, which is even earlier, I think, uh, than those. And it's just, it really is genuinely fascinating to see what a snapshot in time. It is. It, it is. Uh, you know, and what people are, thought was going to, going to was important at the time, and what what subsequently appeared not to be, and vice versa. I'm still amazed that Nick Logan, who was the editor of of, of the Enemy at the time. Had the time to sit there and do all that. I mean, he couldn't have written. Obviously, there's a little credit for various people on the enemy who must have written the odd caption. But I guess he probably got home and, you know, rolled a piece of paper into his typewriter most nights and just banged out something about um, about uh, the Fugs or Kinky Friedman. I think also to be fair, I think I think that you know that this is you know Nick Nick as we know was is very much kind of a layout person and a kind yeah. of you know a magazine person and so forth and i think the idea of doing something that felt as lovely as that book with the fantastic color pictures and so forth will have been a huge part of the appeal but it's so journalistic it's so full of information it's lovely there's the picture of unhalf bricking the cover yeah, yeah. Apple, uh convention entry and even he goes as far as to say in the caption that the two people on the cover are sandy denny's parents absolutely that's uh that's their guard in the background and that, and that was that was really only, valuable information and that's the only way i knew even though i had the record i loved the record loved the cover you had no other sources of information for that, and particularly yeah. for that kind of thing in those days. You know, you might get an interview with the band, but you'd never get that kind of oh, interesting trivia. Yeah, you know. and actually, that stuff's more interesting than the interview with the band. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, was if if it happened nowadays, you would know about it before the record came out. You know, via the internet and so forth. And so, you know, you know, like I said, like this item began before the Internet. That's what we had. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So we're talking about the Bob Dylan book last week. The Bob Dylan book, which is called what again? It's called The Philosophy of Modern Song. What a high-flown title that is. And there was a big thing in in New York. But (laughs) I haven't read this book. But making the point that it apparently only has four women in it. Well, what? it's interesting because there was a big reaction when it came out, and uh, mostly saying it was very good. And now there've been two counter reactions: one, one about the fact that it's got virtually no women in it, and what he says about women in general, and the other kind of complaints from pop stars who are kind of dissed in it, like Chris France from Talking Heads, who's really, really got out of his pram about the fact that Dylan says that Elvis Costello and the Tractions were the, were the predominant group of the late 70s, you know, and he just can't deal with it, you know. Oh, really? But no, the, the, I know, but I'm, for God's sake, it's just an opinion. That's what yeah, he thought. Absolutely. Get know, over it, you know. I, know. I know it's a spokesman for the regeneration and all that, but, you know, it's taking That's a his opinion. I know, I know. <laughs> no, it's interesting, the... Um, 
there are only four, so there are 66 songs that he writes about, and only four of those are by women, and they're Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves by Cher, which is the 47th song. So preceding that are 46 songs entirely by men. Then there's Come On A My House by Rosemary Clooney, and then there's Come Rain or Shine by Judy Garland. Strange um, choices, actually. And Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by Nina Simone. And I, I, it's it, it's kind of controversial because also his attitude in the book about women people have picked up on. This is a piece in uh, the New Yorker, isn't it, by Amanda Petrusish, and uh, he a lot of it is about it kind of fantasies about the women in the songs, and he constantly refers to the women in the songs as vamps or foxy harlots. I'm going to read you a little tiny bit. I know it's so funny. There's a bit about in a, uh, his entry about uh, Ruby. Are you mad by the Osborne brothers? And he's he's just fantasizing about this woman Ruby, and he says, um, "You're the rakish king of life, and Ruby is the royal queen. She's jam packed, full bodied, mellow, top heavy, and in her prime. And you're on the ground floor. She's quick witted and has." bailed you out of many a tight situation. No statue could be as beautiful, and any description would be an understatement. She's not mad at anybody. She calls you snookums, and you call her buttercup. I mean, that's pretty bizarre, isn't it? It is, really. I know. Witchy woman, he talks about women, he said, witchy women appear in wigs with artificial eyes, jewels and cosmetics, T-shirts, shorts and hip boots, fur coats and granny glasses. It says that witchy women, she rubs her middle finger against her thumb and sparks fly. So a lot of it's this kind of strange fantasy about uh, about Dylan thinking about kind of fictional women. And, and his, his, but not that many women songwriters. Or... No, no, only, only as I say, only those four. Which so is no, the... no Joan Byers, for instance. There's no Joan Byers. <laughs> Funny that. There's no Joni Mitchell, who I think he fell out with slightly at one point anyway. Um, no, well, no. I, think, I, I think, to be fair, everybody falls out with Joni Mitchell. Because just Joni Mitchell is... Um, Quite forthright, isn't she? She is in her uh, in her judgment of people like Bob Dylan, which she is. so he obviously couldn't bring himself to say uh, to say something remarkable, you know, some, something about one of her songs. Just hasn't done it at all. No, he hasn't. No, but it's peculiar, really. Uh, but then again, mostly it's the majority of the songs are ones that he remembers from his childhood growing up, and I guess the majority of those songwriters were males. So uh, I mean, yeah. That's that's kind of vaguely understandable. It's funny. I was um, I, something on social media in the last couple of weeks said that the best way to listen to music is you ought to just listen to one artist at a time, and you ought to listen to all their records, you know. And I thought to myself, you can't do that, really, not realistically. You can't. And I, I was trying to think, which artist could I could I bear to spend that much time with, you know? I suppose Bob Dylan. I probably Bob Dylan. Know, there. There's so much variety so, as well, jazz and country and swing and you know. The, the but I, but I found myself in the last week um, listening to a huge number of records by one particular artist, who's Joni Mitchell. And uh, I, you know, I just I didn't particularly start at the beginning or anything. I've just been I've been listening to the records in the middle, really. Yeah. Although. That's that's another thing that that um, that looking at things like the enemy book of rock makes you think makes you reassess where the middle is of all these careers, you know, you know, because if you look in the enemy book of rock, blood on the tracks is late period Bob Dylan. That's right. It's, it's not actually. It's barely adolescent, really, compared to all the stuff he's done since. But anyway, I've been listening to kind of uh, you know Don Juan's Reckless Daughter and. Uh, and hissing at summer lawns and mingus and all those kind of things. And uh, I thought to myself, God, you can live in this world for quite a long time, actually. The world of the, of those Joni Mitchell records, they're absolutely extraordinary. Except I only start to fall out with it when Dog Eat Dog comes along in the mid-'80s. And suddenly all the all the kind of percussion, all the, all the rhythm that's been sort of gently implied for ages suddenly becomes this kind of thwacking disco beat as if she thinks i suddenly have to do something that's going to get played on the radio unsuccessfully but i tell you the other thing that struck me um while listening to these johnny mitchell records and i've written down some notes um that's how often she refers to the details of clothing 
And I put it to you, Mark Allen, that she refers to the details of clothing in a way that Bob Dylan never would at all, because it simply wouldn't occur to Bob Dylan. Although even you've gone there, stuff you've just gone through, you know, there is stuff about clothing. But she... That's really interesting. She, yeah, I, I'll give you some examples. And these are just from songs I have. Carrie to... refers to the, the things he's wearing. She's putting on her finest silver and he's got his cane and all that. Yeah. yeah. And um, Dickens did this, of course. Dickens, I... Dickens had this absolutely astonishing ability to identify people often by what they're wearing because it told them so much about their class. It told them so much about their profession. Go on. Yeah. So here we these are Joni Mitchell. Song this is from Song from Sharon. Uh Song for Sharon. She talks about Mama's nylons under my cowboy jeans. And then in the song The Boho Dance, even on the scuffle, the cleaner's press was in my jeans, and any eye for detail caught a little lace along the seams. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. And uh, in France, they kiss on Main Street. Gail and Louise in their push-up brassiers, yeah. tight, tight dresses and rhinestones, drinking up the band's beers. And my favourite, which is only just a short, actually, there's another one, yeah, um, another bit from Song for, Song for Sharon. And I saw the long white dress of love on a straw front mannequin, all for something lacy. Some girl's going to see that dress and crave that day like crazy. But the one I like most... That's wonderful. From Let the Wind Carry Me. She says, talks about her mother, I think. She says, she don't like my kick pleat skirt. She don't like my eyelids painted green. My kick pleat skirt. That's fantastic. Because that is a very specific reference, you know. It is. Um, you know, and and I thought to myself, I can't think of a male songwriter who writes that kind of stuff. No, that's all, incredible you know. detail. And I, you know, it I, may I, be I, if it isn't too much of a generalization that women notice clothes or details of clothes far more this, than men. I think that's probably a, true. This is a fact. This is a fact. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, you know, in danger of uh, making one of my famous generalizations. But here has been my experience. Okay, and you can you can contradict it all you like. Uh, which is a you know is is two things I've observed after years working with women, which is that generally speaking, when women talk about clothing that they have worn or they plan to wear, they will draw it in the air above their bodies. Yes, they will go. It comes out here and then it goes down there and then it's got a thing down at the back. That yeah. Sounds like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that could be because most women's clothing is slightly more conventional, less conventional than most men's clothing. So men, it's a shirt and a pair of jeans. It's a pair of trousers. You know yeah, yeah. what a pair of trousers looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas women's stuff, there was a tendency to just draw it, and uh, and the other thing is, and I speak as the father of two daughters. And their grandfather of two granddaughters. And I've noticed this from an early age, that when they are introduced to somebody for the first time, particularly a female person, particularly a younger female person, their eyes will rake them up and down for detail. They're just, they're just looking. They scan that person from top to bottom. And they will then remember, you know, weeks later, do you remember when we met that woman? Oh, you mean the woman? The one with the that? red beret, yeah. They remember. In a way that boys would never do. And also all. comment on other, what other people are wearing. Find something complimentary to say about something that somebody's wearing, which, again, yeah. men never do. How often do you meet other men? One man meets another oh, man. You look That's nice. an amazing jacket. Oh, you look lovely. That's an amazing jacket. Well, what have you done with your hair? Something <laughs> new. <laughs> It doesn't happen very often, does it? Yeah. How, how often have we ever met and we've opened the conversation with, oh, nice top. Oh, lovely. Yeah, that belt buckle. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, nice top. Top, spelt T-S-O-P. The Word Podcast, driving the digital kids to school since 2007. And we're joined uh, in another birthday slot by the great Simon Poulter. Simon, lovely to see you. And you have a question, I know, or a, or a subject you want to discuss. But, I mean, how happy birthday. And when was it? Have you had it? Thank you. It, yes, it was last Friday, Friday a week ago. So uh, I'm one week older. Was, that, uh, was it uh, celebrated in any particular way? 
Yeah, I went to see uh, a very, very, my oldest friend, actually, um, on stage at Wembley Arena. Um, oh Stephen goodness. Wilson, who was in Porcupine oh, right. Tree. Oh, yeah, yes, that's oh. right. And that was a tremendous, um, tremendous I remember you talking about him before. Yeah. It was their first uh, gig in London for 12 years. Um, and I think he made the, the remark on the night that, you know, back in 1997, they played to 14 people. So uh, now he's playing to, what, 12,500 people, Wembley Arena. So a Wonderful. very proud moment. Oh, Great that's fantastic. Gig, and you wanted to talk about rock books, I think, and just ones that you particularly liked. Yeah. Well, Go I mean, on, give us a few examples. We, we've just been talking about the old uh, Enemy Book of Rock and the Rolling Stone Record Guide. And so what, what have been your particular favourites? Well, the, there's one, I mean, there's so many. I mean, my my bookshelf is groaning with them. But I mean, I mean of the, the one that probably stands out the most, the one that I've actually probably recommended to people more than anything else is this book. Hotel California by oh, Barney Hoskins. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, it's a very good book. It's, I mean, to me, it's just, it's tremendous in the way it just evokes um, that, that whole canyon scene in the late 60s, early 70s, to the extent where if I could time travel, that would be the, the, the both the period and the place I would go back to just to experience all that was going on in, in, in the canyons of California and in the uh, well, beginning of the seventies, end of the, in the sixties, I mean, it's just so evocative, and the way that Barney writes it, obviously, is is you know very, very, uh, very engaging. But it's so just, have, you, uh, have you, you read it more than once? I've read that book more than once, and I've also bought it two or three times to give to people. Can you quote bits of it? Can you? I wish I could. I really wish I could. I mean, it. Yeah, I. I, I would love to be able to just. just come out with tracks of it but no it it, it just i think the whole experience is just what i love about it it's so fascinating that time that you're constantly being taken to kind of um you know parties in laurel canyon and there's crosby stills nash and young and frank zapper and the mummers and the puppers all these people Joni mitchell and you feel that they're all one great brotherhood and sisterhood and yet there must have been incredible rivalry but that's it's you know i i just I'm, i'm amazed by how supportive they appear to be of each other yeah but there's also there's, there's things like you know the, the way it describes that um, you know Glenn Frey and, and and Jackson Brown were just were hanging out together and they just popped down the hill to to the Troubadour for the evening with, with yeah. Linda Ronstadt um, and you just think this is this almost this village scene which you know well, it was ever it was it was it was yeah. a village scene I can remember going there in well in the late seventy seven or something like that Laurel Canyon was. It was not yet kind of millionaire's playground that it is now, you know, those kind of places. So it still felt slightly, slightly villagey. And also those people weren't as famous then as they as they subsequently became. But it's interesting, this thing about, about books that, um, you know, books you keep returning to. And um, the one for me is Nick Cohn's A Wop Bop, A Loo Bop, A Lot Bamboon, which I first read in 1969. And I could sit here and I could I could quote the, the entire book pretty much off the top of my head. And that was the interesting thing about the talk about the enemy book of rock. And I tweeted about it yesterday saying, does anybody remember this? And people were coming back saying, yes, I can quote you bits of it, you know. Uh, and what Bob Malubop is incredibly opinionated, isn't it? And quite oh, damning about the Beatles. The Beatles are still going, I think, when that book was written, wasn't it? When yes. Was, yeah. So the Beatles are still going, and he kind of feels that the Beatles are just have become uh, overtaken. Well, he's, he, yeah. he he says he, he says they've overtaken the kind of pop music that he liked. You know, the, the pop music has got too clever. Yeah. You know, he thinks pop music has to be kind. Of, he, his ideal of pop music is Creedence Clearwater Revival, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that at all. I'll tell you what I just found when we were talking about legendary rock books just while we were waiting to start. I found my old copy of this. Oh, funny. I've just been reading that too. A cellar full of noise. Do you you know how much this cost in 1960? I've just got a reprint. There it is. Yeah. This is 15 shillings in in 1965 or, or whatever it was. And the opening line, this is the opening bit of, uh, of Brian Epstein's account of the Beatles. It's really interesting, the things that people thought were, you know, should be brought to the fore. The opening line is, the group of young musicians who could neither read music nor write it. 
and who are known as the Beatles conquered the United States of America on February the 7th, 1964. It's the idea that, uh, that could you, if you couldn't read or write music, that was still, it was remarkable that you could make it. You know what I mean? In those days, nobody remarks about that kind of thing anymore, do they? They they remark about the fact that anybody can read music. I suppose so. Astonishing, you know. Uh, I suppose so. That was one of the things we were thinking. We were talking to Trevor Trevor Horn, Trevor Horn, the other. We were asking Trevor Horn. He was in all these these bands playing at the kind of on the top rank circuit. You know, we said, "So what are you? It must be really hard. You have to learn all these songs every week, all these new hits." He said, "It wasn't hard at all. We just given sheet music. We sat down and played it." It's the idea that you're playing, uh, you know, the. Honey bus or whatever it is like that, you know, off sheet music is astonishing, really, isn't it? His book's really good, actually. You, you ought to you ought to look that out, Simon. That uh, because he talks about he auditioned with the Raymond Vey Orchestra just by starting to play, didn't he? Pretty much yeah. at a show, they sat him down, you know, and put the music in front of him, and the whole orchestra struck up, and he just had to play the bass. And then after he'd done one whole show, they say, you fucked up on so-and-so. <laughs> he did That's one, right. one bum note. Yeah, or something. Yeah. So, have you ever done that kind of thing, Alex? You, Alex, can you read music? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not great. Um, well, they tried to teach me in school, but I just was, I was more interested in breaking their drum kits than reading any notation. And then when I got the ukulele orchestra gig on the pretense of being able to read music, um, I had to learn to read music. Before... So did you have, to, you have to sit there at first just looking at the music and pretending yeah. you were reading so it? so I got a call from the music of the director. He said, oh, Alex, yeah, so you can read dots, can't you? I went, yeah, yeah, of course I can. <laughs> and uh, I had to go back and sit in my house in Peckham for a month and teach myself how it all worked before I got over to Germany for rehearsal so nobody could figure me out. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, bear in mind, I think our first, the first piece we got sent was Carmen Overture, so not... Not something simple. Uh, so it was kind of good in a way, I suppose, because I got broken in in the most horrible way possible. We had Rondo Alaturka by Mozart as well, which is, you know, um, you want to start reading music, you want to start with a Mozart banger, really. Um, <laughs> Mozart that's, banger. That'll, that'll straighten you out. Um, so now I, I can... A lot of I can, notes in Mozart, aren't they? I yeah, can follow it and... Uh, and I'm, I'm fine, but yeah, following it in real time is, is still difficult for me. Um, I did a, an orchestra pit job, actually, um, playing the oud again on the pretense that I could actually do it. And um, and that was fine to a point, but it was the first time I'd worked with an actual conductor. So I was trying to follow the dots and also trying to follow the conductor because the pace was changing all the time and the, and the dynamic. And that was that was really weird. So, I mean, it's not just about reading the actual notes themselves. It's about everything else that's surrounding them as well, which I didn't realise before having never done it. So it's it's a whole rabbit hole. Um, don't do it. Can you, re- can you read music, Mark? No, I can't. I mean, no, I can read. I, yes, I, well, I could because they used to play the violin actually and the trombone. So, I, yeah, I could. I can read treble clef. I, can, I, I can't read anything but treble clef. Just, I can still remember it, yeah. I can read music very, very slowly. You know, I was taught to play the piano at the age of about yeah. eight or whatever. And and it's it stayed with me ever since. So, you know, I can look at music and piano music and I put my fingers. It seems right so way. magical that someone wow. can look at a look at a score and just hum the tune. I think that's still fantastic. I couldn't hum yeah. it, but yeah, I, I know, can really place amazing. my fingers in the yeah. right place. What about you, Simon? Can you read music? I was taught very I think I was about eight eight or nine that I was, I was taught classical guitar. Uh, hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I don't think I really followed reading music. After what, that. what would I mean, you rather have been playing on the guitar than classical music? Other rock and roll. What, <laughs> sort, of, what sort of thing? Well, well I, I mean, I remember bringing the guitar home. I, I mean, I used to sort of like listen to things like, you know, wish you were here and, and, and learn that on this Spanish guitar, which was, which, which was awful. Um, and there's a particular Steve Hackett solo from from a Genesis song called Further Fifth, and I learned that on it um, on this classical guitar, which probably sounded even worse. And I interviewed him a few years ago, and I, I sort of very proudly told him this. He was suitably unimpressed. Oh, <laughs> he just thought, what, what a waste of my time! This guy's telling me about his classical. Your mate Stephen Wilson would have been very impressed with you learning surely a Steve Hackett. Uh, he, well, he, he, he he's less than cool about that sort of thing. I must admit, but um, no, I mean, I, I mean, I just, I mean, to be honest, it just it bored me senseless. And I've had this. The teacher I had was this guy that I used to used to do the lessons in the school lunchtime, 
and the and the music room was right next to the canteen. So the the, the whole experience was this teacher who'd fleece you for about I don't know twenty quid, which back in the you know whenever it was was quite a lot of money, just for a photocopy of a piece of sheet music. Wow. While he sat there eating his lunch no, in this no. canteen with all the noise and the smell from the school canteen next door, while I sat there trying to you know, get my stubby little fingers to work around etudes and things like that. Um, and I'd sort of go home and sort of like try to work out the riff of Jumping Jack Flash. And I thought, oh, this is much, much more me. <laughs> so that, that didn't last until I think beyond my 10th birthday. Oh, well, um, you have to go away and practice. It's never too late to practice. <laughs> practice is perfect. Yeah, never too late. Well, look, Simon, thank you for joining us. Lovely uh, to see you. And happy birthday again. To mark your birthday. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.